Hello, and a warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. I am thrilled to be joined today by Nicholas Courier. Nicholas is counsel in the corporate department of Conyers in the British Virgin Islands. His practice includes many aspects of corporate law, including mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, shareholders agreements, and corporate governance. Nicholas advises a wide range of clients with a particular focus on the technology, media, and telecommunication spaces, as well as financial services and insurance sectors. Now, Nicholas was a recent interviewee with us over at Africa Legal, and for those more inclined to read rather than listen, we will be including a link to that question and answer session in the podcast description. So great to be talking with you once again, Nicholas, and this time through the medium of the podcast. Thanks, Tom. For, thanks for having me. Um, good morning, and, or rather good afternoon at your end. Yes, ah, the BVI. So do do just tease our listeners very quickly. Just how glorious is it listening, living on a Caribbean paradise such as the BVI? Give us a sneak peek. <laughs> yes, I do get this quite often, um, particularly when I relocated offshore. Um, descriptions of what you normally see uh, on postcards are actually pretty accurate. It is a very picturesque part of the world. Um, quite a different pace of life um, if you're comparing it to the UK and um, the US. But, you know, really enjoy it. Um, you know, the, the weather can't be complained about too much, uh, and certainly this time of year. And, um, yeah, really enjoying the time out here at the moment. And, um, you know, the, the pace of life, the, the, the way you get to balance things out here a bit more, I think it's is been, you know, a fantastic experience for me. Glad to hear it. And listen, speaking of balancing things out, let's let's go ahead and, and deal with some of the, the misconceptions that might be around offshore jurisdictions. I mean, could you, in your simplest terms, explain what offshore jurisdiction actually means to a regular person? And touching on that, why should the average business or business person or onshore lawyer be aware of what this, this actually is and what it means to function as an offshore jurisdiction? It's a good question um, and probably a very good place to start. Uh, so the term offshore jurisdiction, I mean, there's, there's different ways to look at it. Um, the most common understanding and, and sort of concept of it is perhaps to think of it in terms of um, a situation where you have most of the financial and commercial activity um, related to a particular area, which is dealing with non-domestic clients. Um, so one way of thinking about it in particular is that you would have um, a territory you know, like the BVI where you have a relatively large number of financial institutions and financial service um, providers engaged primarily in business with non-residents. I think that's the key thing. It's, it's quite an outward-looking um, jurisdiction and economy when you think of an international financial centre. Um, so you have a financial system in a place like the BVI where um, non-domestic assets and liabilities are you know, pretty large, particularly when you compare it to the domestic financial intermediation in GDP. And that's how these jurisdictions have evolved over time. So in, that sort of, in, in those sort of parameters, then you are excluding jurisdictions or territories like you know, you know, your London, New York, 
um, which are very well-developed, large financial markets, but also they have a better balance or actually have a better or, or a larger domestic market as well as having a very large international market. So that sort of is the distinction you would draw between sort of your onshore financial centres and your offshore jurisdictions. Um, some people like to think of offshore jurisdictions as, you know, a specific list of territories. And if you're doing that, then within that list, you will typically have your, your Bermuda, obviously BVI, Cayman Islands, uh, Guernsey, uh, Isle of Man, Jersey, Luxembourg, Mauritius, Panama. Those are sort of territories that come to mind. Um, and those, so those are, those are well established as offshore jurisdictions. Some people tend to throw in the Netherlands um, and Ireland within that mix, um, you know, to varying degrees of um, agreement or disagreement. That's generally how most people would think of offshore jurisdictions. Um, I know people do think of them as being islands for the most part. I mean, that, maybe that's a, a common theme. I'm not sure whether that's a bit by design or by, by accident, but that's how it sort of panned out. But it is a large, it, it tends to be a, a, a territory, a jurisdiction that has a very large sort of financial services business relative to the GDP of the economy, the local economy, um, a very outward-facing um, uh, financial services sector. Um, so, for example, within the BVR, you're not going to find, you know, a large manufacturing sector or agriculture. Um, it is a, an economy that balances out between a very large financial services sector and tourism, and that's how these tend to evolve. Um so what does it mean to, to, to the average person and, um, you know, why would, you know, your, your typical business person or lawyer um, take a particular interest in this? Um, I think that the answer to that really is in the role that these international financial centers or, or offshore jurisdictions um, have played historically and what we think will continue to do so in the future um, in overcoming barriers to investment um, and in the context of this discussion, particularly with regard to developing countries, in that they provide that secure jurisdiction um, and experienced and highly sophisticated financing structures that allow people to, you know, pool investment, um, share risk, um, and enjoy the benefit, which is, I think, probably the one that most people focus on, which is neutrality. And, and most people tend to center on the tax neutrality of it. Uh, but there is a broader neutrality point there that we can discuss further. But e essentially, people should think of the international financial centers, offshore jurisdictions, as, as conduits for investment. Um, and at this particular time, we've, you know, the global issues around the pandemic and recovery for, for governments, et cetera, and, and, and local economies around the world. Um, there will be an increasing focus on um, being able to stimulate growth. And, and one of the pillars in that is being able to mobilize finance. Um, and that's a role that the international financial centers have fulfilled for decades now. Uh, and as I said, we see a role for us in the future. So to the average person, this is a way to get investment, whether it's in local business, multinationals. We act as a conduit for all that. Um, and as I said, it's a platform for growth and development in the future. So we see that as being the proposition and the value add that the, for, for international financial centers and why they are relevant today, uh, as they have been over the last few decades. 
and so many facets to it. You know, we've touched upon uh, a few of the points of differentiation. Uh, you know, it's a, a very large financial services industry, both by its its infrastructure, the talent available, the size of the transactions that are being managed, that kind of beguiles the local uh, GDP um, uh, of the, the, the jurisdiction you happen to, to be localized in. Now, we touched upon tax neutrality in your comment there, and you and I have talked about this previously in, in some detail, but it's not a term which often springs to mind when the words tax and offshore find themselves in the same sentence. Um, you know, um, uh, tax haven, uh, tax right. avoidance, perhaps, but tax neutrality, yeah. not so much. So let's deep dive into that. What does tax neutrality actually mean? How does it exist? And, you know, what does it mean for other jurisdictions outside of, uh, you know, the BVI and other offshore hubs? Yes, I know we have talked about this, and it's one that I've, I've um, delved into in the article separately. But yes, I think it's worth focusing on this. Um, and you're right as well. Um, the headlines that people will have seen in relation to offshore financial centers like uh, the BVI is... Um, you know, the tax avoidance element of it, you know, tax evasion, whatever you want to call it. Um, tax neutrality, um, in, in sort of straightforward terms, essentially is a situation whereby, and if we think of it in terms of a transaction um, or a structure for an investment, um, you'll have, um, you know, your local assets, your business that's being invested into, let's talk about Africa for the, in this case, Um You've got your your local business um, assets owned in Africa, uh, business with employees that exists on the continent, whether or not held by a, a local holding company or uh, independently. You then have investors, uh, and we'll focus on international investors for the moment. They're coming in. They could be based in uh, you know in Asia or in North America. Uh, they want to make that investment into Africa. Um. Structure-wise, where, where international financial centers sit within that proposition is that the, um, the investors in Asia and, and North America, they will invest via a, an, an international financial center. And in the case of the BVI, they'd probably use a BVI business company for that purpose. In the operation of that joint venture enterprise into uh, making an investment into Africa, what is happening is that the, the local operating business, the local operating company, that will owe taxes in Angola or Madagascar, wherever it is, uh, by virtue of having the employees and the assets um, and the operating business going on there on the continent, on the ground. And similarly, um, once the proceeds of whatever investment it is, whether it's a, it's a capital realization or it's a, a dividend stream, that money will flow up to the BVI vehicle. And where tax neutrality comes in is that the BVI doesn't impose an, an additional layer of tax. So the BVI doesn't impose corporate tax, income tax, capital gains tax on BVI business companies. So the funds flowing up from the investment on the ground in Africa, those pass through the BVI vehicle and into the hands of the investors. Now, the investors will be tax resident in you know, in Asia or in North America, and they will pay tax on the receipt of those proceeds, whether it's dividends or, or capital receipts, um, in the particular jurisdiction where they are tax resident. 
So what tax neutrality really means is that um, as a conduit, the, the parties look to that structure and, and appreciate and understand that there's going to be taxes due in Africa on the ground where the assets are held and where the operating business is, and obviously taxes to pay wherever the investors are tax resident. But the BVI does not impose a separate tax on the funds that flow through the BVI vehicle. That's where we talk about tax neutrality. So there is zero tax to pay at the BVI level. Okay. And and in simplest terms, is this uh, a, a more streamlined and reliable method in addition to, say, a double taxation treaty, um, i.e., you're utilizing the BVI as a springboard for your investment into relevant African jurisdictions and all the benefits that come with it. And hand in glove with that comes the net neutrality, uh, the tax neutrality even. Um, whereas if you were simply relying upon a double taxation avoidance treaty, you wouldn't necessarily be having the benefits, additional benefits on offer uh, from the BVI, for example, if you're investing capital directly into that market. Forgive me if that's a layman's misunderstanding, but is that correct? Well, the key point there is that to understand is that the BVI does not have any uh, double tax treaties or tax treaties with any jurisdictions. So, there are no benefits, and this is part of the misconception when people think about um, BVI in particular when it comes to tax planning. So as in the scenario I described, having the BVI vehicle does not reduce your tax liability to onshore tax authorities. So, for example, uh, on the ground in Africa where the, the assets are held, um, tax is due and should be paid um, uh, in accordance with local law there. Um, the BVI doesn't impact on that. When the funds then flow up through the BVI vehicle um, and into the hands of the investors, wherever they're located, whenever they're tax resident, again, um, the, the the applicable tax rates will apply to the funds received in the hands of those share, of those investors, uh, wherever they're tax resident. So BVI doesn't reduce the tax burden um, on the investors ultimately when they receive the funds in their home jurisdiction with their tax resident. Um, and as I, as I mentioned there, the BVI doesn't have any tax treaties. Um, so there is no benefit in that regard. Um, so what we are really offering as a proposition is that um, for the purposes, and I think we'll, we'll probably take the discussion beyond just tax neutrality, but in terms of structuring, um, it just means there's no leakage along the way by virtue of having used the BVI vehicle. But you wouldn't be using the BVI vehicle to, to reduce your tax bill in your home jurisdiction to zero or a number close to zero. Uh, this, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm glad that we could deal with the tax issue head on because it actually opens up the discussion to uh, much more relevant and I think interesting dynamics, which is, look, don't think this is about tax. You know, it, it prevents leakages. It doesn't avoid tax, but it certainly doesn't add on additional burdens. But there's still a very, very good reason why thousands of businesses and and, and, and millions, if not billions in, in, in dollars flow through uh, the BVI, um, you know, the, the as a, as a conduit, as a facilitator for investment. So look, let's dive into those reasons. Beyond, uh, you know, avoiding tax leakage and tax neutrality, 
what is it? Why is the BVI so well positioned and so useful in in what it does in facilitating investments into into third party jurisdictions and in particular in Africa? Uh, what is it you've got on offer, Nicholas? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we can start with the neutrality point, actually. Um, so we've talked about tax neutrality now, but uh, there is a broader point. So using my example again of having a joint venture um, between you know an investor from North America and an investor from Asia, um, they're looking for a vehicle they can use to deploy funds for investment in Africa. Now, there's a decision there to be made. I'll keep it simple by using just two joint venture parties. There's a decision to be made there as to which vehicle you use for the purposes of the investment. Now, you could use a, a Delaware corporation, um, but your Asian joint venture party uh, perhaps wouldn't be too keen um, to expose themselves to you know, litigation or having to litigate within um, the, the US, a jurisdiction with, in which they're not based. Um, you could use a, a vehicle in China, for example, or in another Asian country. But again, then your U.S. investor has to make a decision there as to whether they'd be comfortable with, you know, the corporate governance standards in that jurisdiction, etc. Um, so where the BVI sits um, quite nicely and effectively over, over a number of decades now is in offering up that third jurisdiction, that neutral jurisdiction in which neither your North American investor or your Asian investor has particular influence. Um, it's an independent third-party jurisdiction um, which you know has a demonstrable track record uh, as having served as an international financial center since you know the, the early eighties. Um, so in that regard, we're, you're, we're able to offer up by way of using a BBI vehicle, um, you know, a, a base, a platform that doesn't give either the parties uh, sort of unfair home advantage in any regard. So that's how we look at it in terms of the, the, the neutrality point. Um, so sitting alongside the specific tax neutrality, there is a sort of broader commercial uh, neutrality that we, we'd like to sort of ensure isn't, doesn't get missed in the discussion. Appreciating that, obviously, um, tax is, is one that people focus on because it has the most immediate financial impact. Um, but there is a broader commercial rationale for it. And the evidence is there in the numbers. Um, BVR has over 400,000 um, companies incorporated um, which sort of dwarf some of the other offshore jurisdictions like you know the Cayman and Bermuda. So um, there is value there. There is a there's a proposition there that you know parties around the world have have bought into and continue to use. So that's that deals with neutrality. Um, another key selling point for the BVI is, is the rule of law. Um, so what we have here in the BVI is um, an independent court system. Um, it's a common law jurisdiction uh, based on English common law. Um, and the ultimate court of appeal here in the BVI is um, is actually the Privy Council in London. So um, decisions from BVI courts here are actually uh, subject to appeal in, in, in London as well at the Privy Council level. So that offers up, we find, a fair degree of, of comfort in terms of having an independent judicial system, which is important when you're, whenever you're taking an assessment of the risk profile of any investment. Um, so being able to offer up, I think that the two pillars that we tend to um, talk about when we talk about the BVI proposition, obviously the neutrality point, um, but also the rule of law um, and having that sort of robust, independent judicial system here in the BVI, we find has been looked upon very favorably over 
a number of years by very many investors um, from all over the world. It's good to hear. And, and and if we've got any history nerds listening, such as such as myself, um, if you want a fascinating little insight into archaic, weird and wonderful history, have a Google of the Privy Council. Um, I think you'll be as, as fascinated as I was when I found out about its, its origins. And Nicholas, if you don't know its origins, stay quiet and have a Google after this podcast. I'm sure you'll be very <laughs> interested. <laughs> now, now, you and I have talked about some of the sectors that have seemed to be most willing to embrace uh, you know what's on offer here, and mining has has sprung up. You know it's one of the main main sectors in in a lot of African jurisdictions. But you know we really do want to see a diversification of sector engagement um, with the BVI for African ventures. So what what do you see as some of the key steps or opportunities that should be taken to develop and grow the connections between uh, BVI and, and Africa? What is there for us to do to develop more of this, this uh, these relationships? Yeah, so... Absolutely. I mean, we, we are the firm belief, and I personally am the firm belief, that there is um, a lot of runway here in terms of opportunity um, for uh, BVI and, and Africa to work together going forward. Um, I think the starting point, and this is probably the forum, why I was sort of on this forum and having this discussion, is I, mean, I think the first stage for us really is to um, get a better understanding of how international financial centers um, like the BVI operate in practice. Um, so you, you can call it the sort of the, the myth-busting crusade that I'm on. Um, but just trying to get to a stage where there is a level of understanding um, as to what, first of all, first of all, how the jurisdiction operates, um, and secondly, what the benefits are. And how those can work themselves into structuring for Africa, for investment into Africa. Um, we, we deal a lot at the moment with um, onshore entities and onshore um, law firms. Being a law firm ourselves, we get a lot of our instructions um, from from that sort of um, part of the, the sort of spectrum on the transaction front. Um, but we don't see as much interaction between uh, sort of BVI. Uh, speaking for ourselves as conyers and and law firms on the ground. And I think that's something that we'd like to see uh, change. Um, and when we talk about how this all sort of fits together and what we need to do to sort of get to a stage where there is a sort of greater flow of, um, you know, deal-making and, and, um, and also, also the litigation front not to be left behind because we do have a very... Um, prominent litigation practice uh, in the BVM, but generally as a jurisdiction. Um, I, I, I think what we want to avoid, I think where we start from is that obviously when you talk about institutional investors in particular, um, they will have a particular risk appetite um, when they're looking at emerging markets and focusing at the moment for, with Africa. What we wouldn't want to find is a situation whereby, um, you know, because of the investment mandate, uh, because of whatever restrictions they may have, and I'm focusing on institutional investors in particular, um, they would have restrictions that prevent them from going into what may be perceived as particularly high risk um, or illiquid um, investments. And... That assessment is made on the basis that they'd be making an investment directly into an African entity or into an African business. 
And where the BVI does sit, um, and I think international financial centers more broadly, is that um, they do provide an avenue for risk mitigation, um, particularly when we talk about the, the two points we were discussing, which is the neutrality um, and the rule of law, um, that do help in terms of being a factor in that sort of discussion of the risk profile. And what we would want to have happen is because there hasn't been enough engagement between you know, your advisors on the ground, whether it's, it's law firms, the investment banks, the other sort of financial services advisors on the ground, and some of these external investors as to what the opportunities are for risk mitigation, that some of these investments then don't proceed just because, um, you know, the, the risk profile of it or the risk appetite wasn't there. And there wasn't enough of a discussion around, you know, what are the avenues available for mitigating that risk? Um, and because we didn't have the visibility and the interaction between the BVI and, you know, local law, African law firms and investment banks and financial services advisors, tax advisors, because there wasn't enough of that interaction, that some of these opportunities are missed um, simply because the full picture or, or the analysis wasn't taken a step further by having sort of the BVI uh, and, and sort of, you know, other international financial centers input into that process. So the way I see things evolving and developing in the future is if we can have that forum, starting first, as I said, with can we get um, a more accurate reflection of what actually happens in international financial centers out there? Um, and then begin to have that forum where there can be that engagement between advisors in respective jurisdictions, just so that when discussions are being had about potential investments and how you structure them, um, we that sort of opportunity to mitigate the risk, to provide a broader appeal to you know a wide array, array of investors around the world who are perhaps more familiar with um, international financial centers and vehicles and the BVI and Cayman, et cetera, but not so familiar with um, and not so comfortable with, you know, entities that are incorporated directly in the local jurisdiction without having some, some comfort or track record behind it. So with BVI, as I said, you know, we're approaching the 40 years of having done this um, as a jurisdiction. So um, that sort of pillar needs to be built into it and that element needs to be built into the discussion. So hopefully by having this sort of discussion we're having now and hopefully even further discussions on it, we can broaden the appeal and the understanding as to what is available and how it sort of fits into the ecosystem um, to ensure that we have the engagement going forward and the opportunities aren't missed. Most certainly. And and it's been a real pleasure uh, taking uh, our listeners on, on the start of that journey. And I'm really thrilled that we've been able to have a, a conversation with regard to offshore jurisdictions with the, the phrases of uh, well, the terminology rule of law, neutrality and risk mitigation, rather than some of the, the, the more commonly uh, used phrases. So it's been very educational for me, and I hope the same has been for our listeners. Now, believe it or not, that does bring us to time, Nicholas. So I will say a very big thank you for joining me on today's episode. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
Absolute pleasure too. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, Be sure to have a look at our existing interview with Nicholas, which is available on Africa Legal. If you are new to the podcast series, be sure to peruse our back catalogue, which is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And as always, for all the news, views, and insights that make your life as a modern African legal professional better, visit us at www.africa.com. Africa-legal.com. So without further ado, I have been Tom Pearson, and this has been the Africa Legal Podcast. Mm-hmm.